Well, either way, take your Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 25. It's on page 65. If you'd like to use a Bible from the church, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Either way, Exodus 25, we're going to read verses 1 through 9 of the 25th chapter. Thank you guys for leading us and for serving us uh, that you would uh, help us to sing praises to our Lord Jesus. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says, beginning at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they may take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive this contribution for me. And, and this is the contribution that you will receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hairs, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastplate, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning this pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There's no word like your word. And as we now consider your word, may you be worshiped by how we hear and receive your word, how we learn from your word, how you transform us by your spirit from your word. Help us, Father, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are now in a new segment of the book of Exodus, beginning in chapter 25, and pretty much in and out, but really now through the rest of the book, chapter 40, it will be primarily concerning the tabernacle. We just read these first nine verses that introduce us to the tabernacle. The tabernacle will be the place of worship for the people of Israel for some 500 years. Prior to this, as we noted just even last week, they built an altar to worship God. The altar was the place that they met with God leading up to the tabernacle. And, and uh, finally, during the reign of Solomon, down the road, uh, the, the temple, a permanent place, uh, will be the, the gathering of God's people for the worship of God. But here is a provisional, transitional place of worship, a tabernacle, a tent, a, a mobile, portable Place in which the people of Israel would gather in the presence of God for the worship of God. And uh, we, we won't cover every nook and cranny of this last segment in the book of Exodus. There's elaborate details 
Uh, first are the instructions for the tabernacle and its furnishing and the priestly garments that are to be worn in the carrying out of the work of uh, worship. And so really in chapters 25 to 31, uh, the Lord lays down the instructions for the tabernacle. We are going to collapse those instructions. We will, my plan is for next week, we will look at chapters 28 and chap, part of chapter 29 to look particularly at the priestly garments and what some of that might teach us about the Lord and about his gospel. But for this morning, we're going to just introduce ourselves through these instructions, which is chapters 25 through 31. And then uh, after that, it picks up again in chapters 35 through 40 to, to lay out the actual construction of the uh, tabernacle. So there's at least 10 chapters that are devoted to the uh, instructions, the plans, and the implementation of those plans. Um, and uh, we're, we're not going to cover uh, all of that, the elaborate details, the specific plans. Um, I, I would just note, I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat um, moved by this. I don't know that I understand all of the implications of this, but 10 chapters lay out the the building and the construction of the tabernacle and the, the record of God's creation of all things is contained in one chapter of the Bible. Now, in part, uh, to use an old cliche, sometimes it's just easier to do things yourself. And so the Lord doesn't have to lay out much instructions for himself when he just spoke all things into existence. But now when he involves humanity in a partnership to complete the, ta the tabernacle for his worship, uh, then he has to lay it out very specifically. Uh, this, there, there's no detail left up to the Israel's imagination. Now, you all kind of do this however you want to. There's, there's no design build here. There, there's, a, there's specific instructions laid out, and then the later chapters help us to know that just as we were instructed to build it, that's the way they built it. And in part, we even see that reflected in, in verse 9, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, you shall make. You see, these, these plans, um, the writer of Hebrews tells us, uh, reflect something of a heavenly sanctuary, a heavenly abode or structure. A writer of Hebrews in chapter 8, verse 5 says there's the, this tabernacle, and later I think the same for the temple, but, but they served as a copy or a shadow of heavenly things. That's a, another reason why you guys got to build it exactly the way I tell you, because I know what the heavenly sanctuary looks like, and I'm wanting you to replicate that down here on this earth in this uh, mobile tabernacle, and then later in the permanent uh, temple. Now, the other thing I find amazing, and maybe this is why it's very elaborate as to why there's specifics, is that um, the Israelites, most Israelites, 
Beyond these verbal instructions, most Israelites never saw what was beyond the courtyard of the tabernacle and later the, the temple. That they, they, they never got into the holy place and uh, only the priests, certain priests got into the holy place and then only one priest once a year got into the most holy place. So most Israelites, and in that way, even most of the priestly Israelites never saw what was specified for us here in these chapters. And so th th having it written down like that was, was in a sense, a, a, a way to nourish their souls as to what was occurring in that uh, tabernacle and later in that, in that temple. Well, two things I want to note briefly. I want to notice to note something about the plans of the tabernacle. And then we'll look a little bit at, at the, as to the purpose for the tabernacle, the plans. Well, the, the plans, well, the plans begin with uh, uh, an offering. Speak to the people of Israel, it says there in verse 2, and, and, and take for me a contribution, an offering. Now, these people have been wandering around in the wilderness for the past short period of time. Uh, where and how did they get any goods uh, to provide this offering? Well, pretty much the same way that you and I gladly, willingly, cheerfully set aside an offering for the Lord. The Lord provided for them as the Lord provides for us. You remember when they left Israel, I mean, when they left Egypt, the Israelites left with numerous parting gifts, if you would. The Egyptians were more than happy, happy to get rid of the Israelites, and they sent them packing with oodles of gold and silver and precious metals and precious stones and, uh, and yarn and linen and uh, um, uh, a whole host of other materials. And, and, and so in a sense, um, everything that they are now being given the opportunity to give to the Lord is that which the Lord has already provided for them through the hands of the Egyptians. It's the same way with us. Don't give anything to the Lord that you are not convinced in your heart and soul that the Lord has not first amply, bountifully, sufficiently provided for you. We don't have to pay off a God. We live in the good abundance of the God who takes real good care of us. And our offerings can therefore be rooted in joy and worship because, Lord, you, 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 you've watched over me this past week. And I know this is a new week, but I know that you're the same yesterday, today, and always. You will take care of me this week as well. So I can start the week in advance giving gladly, cheerfully, willingly to you because you have taken good care of me all my life, and you will continue to do so. That's why it's so, it's so joyous to hear even some of our older saints 
and, and to hear their faithful testimony of, I'm now in my 80s, I'm now in my 90s, and this is what I've continually learned all of these years. The Lord is always faithful. It is, it is out of that that we can worship God through a, a free will offering, if you would, a generous, glad offering to the Lord. I, I think there's another f- facet of this, and, and that is now for uh, centuries, the Israelites had been building stuff for Pharaoh. And yet they've been building stuff for Pharaoh as slaves. They now have a new master. But a new master who doesn't operate the same way their old master operated. We, we now have a new master who doesn't, uh, uh, who's, who doesn't want compelled servants who he wants willing servants. So he says, every man whose heart moves him to give, give. Now the finance department's probably like, ah, don't say that. We're never going to get enough money to build this temple, t- tabernacle. Put, put the screws on them, Lord. I mean, shake them down, you know? I mean, just don't say, hey, if you feel like giving, give. That's a good way to ruin a, a big offering. Well we'll, well, well, we'll find later in the book that guess what Moses had to come back and do? Which, which tongue-in-cheek, obviously this wasn't a Baptist church, but Moses has to tell the people to stop giving. You will never hear that from us. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> because we never have it. No, anyway. Um, but the Lord, their the hearts were moved to give because they, they saw the great, grand generosity of their, of their God. They, they, they saw their, the, the dynamics of their, of their relationship to their new master. And they were quick and fast and glad and eager to give. Well, the structure, and, and this is where we would have to read in the later uh, chapters, uh, uh, second part of chapter 25, tw- chapter 26, chapter 27, parts of chapter 29, uh, and, and spilling over into chapter 30, where we begin to see something of the structure. The structure begins with a courtyard. The, the size of the courtyard was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. Now, the best I can figure, the, this, we're in a square box right here, sort of, sort of, uh, and uh, maybe the width of this room is... I don't know, 55 feet, something like this. So that gives you some sort of proportionality uh, as to the overall overall courtyard. And at the entrance uh, to uh, to the courtyard, there stood before them a great bronze altar and accompanied by a bronze basin or wash bowl. And this is where the animals were sacrificed. This is where people gathered in the courtyard, all of the Israelites, to bring their animals to be sacrificed. The blood was placed on the horns of the altar, and the animal was either burned or dismembered. And then inside of that courtyard, 
there was a building that was 45 feet long and 15 feet wide. So not a really big place. It was a tent. And it was made, as we would read here in these verses, made of various animal skins and fine linens. Uh, the, 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 the door that would lead into the, the tent the, uh, it had five pillars. That was, the, the walls were made of wood. The structure, at least, of the walls were made of wood overlaid with gold. In fact, I find it interesting, the further you go into the temple, uh, the higher priced the, 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 the materials are. And in the first room in that tent is what we would know as the holy place. It was in that holy place that the Levitical priests would gather. And inside of there, over on the right, there was a table of bread. Uh, chapter, later in chapter 25, that's specified. Uh, on the left, there was a golden lampstand. Uh, chapter 25 as well specifies that for us. Uh, in the middle of that first room inside the tent, there was an a, a altar of incense, chapter 30. Uh, gives us some specifications for that. And then there was a curtain, a purple draped curtain with five more pillars, and that separated uh, the holy place from the most holy place. The, in the most holy place, inside of that uh, was contained the Ark of the Covenant, which was a small box uh, um, that had a lid on it, and uh, it is there at that lid uh, that God himself um, is known to have chosen to reside. It says there in verse 22, for instance, of, of chapter 25, there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you about all that I have given you in the commandments for the people of Israel. And that's the structure. Now, I would suggest to you that um, while the structure on the one hand is fairly plain, it is made of nice materials, there is deep symbolism to be found in that structure. For one thing, I would suggest to you that um, um, the, the, the contexts of that courtyard and that holy place and the most holy place um, is probably symbolic of where they had been currently residing there at the foot of Mount Sinai. And, 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 well, and, and the priests were able to go up a certain height, and then Moses alone was able to go up to the top of the mountain. And, and it's it here over this current 40 days that, that, we are, that Moses is receiving all of these instructions. But as they had ascended the mountain of God uh, in order to, uh, to reach God's throne, here the very imagery of this courtyard and of the tent is meant to reflect something of ascending a mountain. The, the white linens reflect something of the, 
uh, clouds in the heavens. The, the colors of the, of, the, um, uh, of the linen reflect something of the sky and, and what lies, lies above. The, the, the imagery of the cherubim, which is throughout the, the, the tent and, and as well as on the mercy seat, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, is meant to reflect something of the heavenly presence and the heavenly hosts. In other words, uh, they're about to move on from Mount Sinai, and, and yet God is giving them a, a portable uh, mobile unit in which they could ascend into Mount Sinai into the very presence of God. I think another aspect of the symbolism of the plain structure of the tabernacle is it's meant to reflect something of the, the uh, of where God's presence dwelled with mankind in the Garden of Eden. Now, this will be bore out even in more detail when we, if we were to read the instructions on the temple. The, the temple, uh, the, the design of the temple is very um, horticultural. It's, it has lots of garden and tree imageries to it. But we, we, we see that already here in some of the layout of the temple. Um, of the tabernacle. For instance, the, the lamp stand. And if you've seen a menorah before, you, you see something of the imagery that you have in your mind. But, but that's the sh in the shape of a tree, which very arguably is reflecting uh, the, the tree of, of life. The, again, the cherubim and, and, and uh, even the, the, the materials. For instance, in the, in the Garden of Eden, it was noted that there was much gold and precious stones in the Garden of Eden. And so that it's not odd that there would be much gold and precious stones to, that would go into the building of this tabernacle. Why? Because it was to symbolize that, that God was once again fellowshipping with a people, and they would do that through the tabernacle, which is a temporary provisional transitional place that reminds them it's reminiscent of the garden. But as I've already alluded to as well, as the writer of Hebrews says, that, that, that this earthly tabernacle is also symbolic of a heavenly sanctuary. Uh, so that it, in, in, in approaching God through the means that are laid out for the people of Israel in the tabernacle, they are learning something vital and something important about who God is and about how he is to be approached in worship. Which would take me to my second point. What's the purpose of this tent, this tabernacle? Well, I think he specifies that, at least he introduces us to that in verse 8 of chapter 25. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is amazing. At least it ought to be amazing to us. It ought to, we, ought, we ought to not be presumptuous about this. Well, well, sure, I get to dwell with God. I mean, after all, I mean, look at me. Who wouldn't want to hang out with me? Uh, that would be a, a foreign way of approaching the biblical understanding of you and me and God. No, this ought to be a jaw-dropping notion. Really? God wants to dwell with us? God desires to dwell with his people. 
not because he's lonely, not because he's needy. Our God exists in perfect fellowship as the triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love each other and fellowship with each other. And in a sense, if there's ever been a community of people uh, who are self-sufficient, therein it is. He's not lonely. He's not needy. But it is him, out of the abundance of his love, out of the abundance of his sufficiency, out of the abundance of his provision, that he has made us and he desires to fellowship with us, his people, because he knows, since he made us, that we are empty without him. You see, he's not the needy one. He's not the empty one. He's not the lonely one. He knows that he has made us to be the empty, the needy, the lonely ones. He knows that we need him. He knows that we need him more than we need anything else in this world. If we could have the whole world, but just not him, we would still be lonely, empty, and needy. And so he begins uh, to make these audacious statements that run throughout the scripture like a piece of rebar holding the scriptures together. I will be their God and they shall be my people and I will dwell in their midst. In other words, what we, what we saw when the scriptures opened, that there God placed Adam and Eve in a garden, and there he dwelt with his creation in the garden. He fellowshiped with them. And, and yet, as that fellowship was broken because of human rebellion, we read ahead and we see at the end of the scriptures, we see a garden city in which God and the heavens come down. And God says, as he said all throughout the scriptures, I will be their God, and they will be my people, and I will dwell in their midst. And so the scriptures open and close with God desiring and implementing fellowship with his people because that's what he's made us for. And yet here now in this temple, we see the, a, a certain grace to Israel that teaches us of the grace of God as well. This is a grace in which God says to Israel, you know, I want to get right in the middle of you guys. Part of that was so that they would feel the satisfaction of his presence. And part of that, in fact, literally, the layout of the tabernacle and the courtyard was that uh, the 12 tribes were to... Four, three on each side, the 12 tribes were to encamp around the tabernacle. To, in other words, the tabernacle was right smack dab in the middle of the camp to teach them not only that they were made to dwell with God, but to teach them they were made to follow God, that he would be central in their lives. And whenever the Lord gets decentralized from our lives, boy, 
You know this. Doesn't it begin to unravel? And yet, when the Lord is central in our lives, even when it unravels, it doesn't completely unravel, does it? Because the Lord is holding it all together for us, even amidst the unraveling. It is the Lord's goodness that he'd say, I want to get in the middle of you guys because I alone can satisfy you with my presence. I alone can provide you the lead that you need. But the tabernacle also reveals not just that God wants to dwell with his people. And this next point may sound almost kind of like, huh? Aren't you just contradicting yourself? The, this, the, the tabernacle, by how it's laid out and, and how it's accessible, accessible, it, it, re, it reveals um, how God accomplishes meeting with his people. The very structure of the tabernacle and later the temple reminds us God is holy we are not God is holy we are creatures God is holy we are sinful creatures and that's a bad mix Such pure, infinite, holy glory is, in fact, unapproachable from the vantage point of limited, finite, sinful creatures. Thus, the courtyard had a fence around it. In other words... Yes, it kept people out. But only for their own safety. Not because God didn't want to meet with people. He, remember, he's right in the middle of it. He desires to dwell with people. And, and yet, sinful, finite, limited creatures do not have unfettered access to a holy, pure infinite, eternal God. There's a sense in which that we ought to feel appropriately small and insignificant over that reality. People came into the courtyard only by means of sacrifice. And the tent the tent, as I've alluded to, was only accessible by the priests and the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant resided. That was accessible by, only by the high priest only once a year, only after that high priest had made adequate preparation for himself. You see, there were zones, if you would, Approaching God is serious. It's dangerous. I know that it, I don't think we feel the weight of that because we have we have shrunk the size of our God. He's just a he's just this really nice little bit bigger being than we are. 
uh, and he just exists to kind of help us through the rough patches of life. And uh, uh, he, he just doesn't interfere with much of our decisions in our daily life, but he's there to help when, whenever we, you know, might get into a rough spot. Um, now, it is true that, that God befriends us but, but what ought to inform and amaze the notion that God befriends us is how can a one who is too pure to look upon sin want to be and accomplish friendship with us? I, I mean that not to, not to merely leave us put down and in our place. I, I mean that ultimately that in Christ Jesus, how lifted up and how precious the blood of Jesus really is. That you and I can come into the presence of God and live to tell about it. Without proper authorization, without appropriate preparation and cleansing, then to gather in God's presence merely invokes God's judgment. That's what happens when sinful people show up in the presence of a holy God. People die. Thus the fence. And yet the temple reminds us of a third thing that I've already bumped into, and that is the temple reminds us that there is... Um, a boatload of provision for cleansing and reconciliation that it would come through the activity of sacrifice, that it would come through the shedding of blood. And it is at that point that I now skip and leap and jump out of Exodus 25, and I now take us to the fulfillment, if you would, of what the tabernacle and its structure and its design and its purpose is meant to point to. Remember I said in the, into the most holy place where God's presence is said to resign, there I will meet with you. And yet here's the problem. God wants to meet with us, but nobody can get in there except for the high priest. And he can't get in there but only once a year. And he can't get in there only once a year after he's first made his own cleansings and preparations. So how is it that God wants to meet with us when nobody can get in there? As Jesus is dying on the cross, as he is dying as an atoning sacrifice, taking upon himself our sin, taking upon himself the penalty of our sin, the condemnation of our sin, the curse of our sin, as he is doing that and as he breathes his last breath, something incredible happens back at the temple. And in Matthew 27, verse 51, tells us that at the moment that Jesus is dying, that behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
access is now possible into the very presence of God because now a once for all blood has been sprinkled on the mercy seat of God propitiating our sins so that God would be merciful to any and all who are trusting in Jesus. Any and all who trust in Jesus now have pardon, now have cleansing, now have consecration, now uh, have empowerment, now have reconciliation. Writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 says, for Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. We have a substitute, the God-man, the only mediator who has ripped down the curtain that kept us for our own good in that sense, but kept us from gathering into the presence of God by one single sacrifice. The curtain is now permanently tore down. And Hebrews 4 reminds us then, what's the implication of that? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that on top of that ark set the lid. Uh, that lid was the throne of God's presence. So really what the writer of Hebrews says is that with the curtain ripped in half, torn from top to bottom, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy. That's why it's called a mercy seat. And that we might find grace in our time of need. You have a father now. He's no longer the God whose judgment stands over you, condemning you justly, rightly. You now, in, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, through the very power of the shed blood of Jesus, you now have a father who says, talk to me. I'm listening. Call upon me. What do you need? What kind of help do you need? You have a father. We are not orphans. We are well-loved children of God. And every nook and cranny that we could think about in terms of the, of the pictures that we find laid out for us in this section of Exodus about the tabernacle, it finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who is the dwelling of God. John 1.14 tells us uh, that, that we beheld his glory, that he came and dwelt among us. That, that word dwelt that John uses is really the, the verbal form of the word tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. He is now the tabernacle, the temple of God. He is now the dwelling place of God. He is now the, the lamb that was offered on the altar uh, whose blood was shed for us and for our salvation. He is now the water that cleanses. He is now the light and the life of the, of the, of the, of the tree uh, of the lampstand. He is now the bread of heaven. He is now the high 
priest who passes into the heavenlies and enters into the most holy place. He is the one who grants us access into the presence of God. It is his blood that satisfies the justice of God, turning away the justice of God and turning toward us the mercy of God. It is, it is so that we might be the people who come to God's throne to find mercy. He is the one who continues to intercede for us as he pleads our case. We gather and we worship the Lord Jesus Christ, for without the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not suited, fitted, qualified, validated, justified in order to belong to our God and to worship him and to call upon him. This comes through Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Trust only in him. He is our tabernacle. He is our temple. He is our savior. He is our sacrifice. He is Lord. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for how your word takes us to Jesus, points out who Christ is and what he has done for people such as us. So it is with glad hearts that we gather to worship Jesus by what we've sung already this morning, as what we've heard from your word, but even now as we respond, our desire, our intention is to honor you and to glorify you with all that you've given to us, with all that you are for us in Christ Jesus. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's